Good morning. My name is Pastor John, as Mike, as Mike mentioned, and I'll just say, I'll just, uh, so as, as we read that scripture today uh, in chapter 3, we're in chapter 3 again, I, I, I can imagine your mind went to that last part of the verse, the unforgivable sin. Um, the unforgivable sin, and it begs the question, okay, what is the unforgivable sin? And, oh my goodness, have I, have I committed this unforgivable sin? That's a, a scary thought. And I think, I think we can think about this, whether we're, we grew up religious and churched, or even um, it's a kind of a cultural idea out, outside of the church, this idea of is, is there a point of kind of no return? And, and um, it's scary because we, we know, if we're, we're honest, as human beings, we don't even live up to our own standards, do we? Let's be honest. The, the standards we set, you know, the, the New Year's resolutions you've already broken, okay? We don't live up to them, let alone the standards of a, of a perfect, holy God whose standards are and whose standard is perfection. Now, I, I imagine you're also here today because you've, you've heard about this, this holy, just God. You've heard that he's also merciful, He's gracious, he's patient toward his children. But again, is there a point where God's patience runs out and that's it? The point of no return. Is there an unforgivable sin that results in an unthinkable consequence? Separation from God cut off from his love for all eternity. Nothing left but his wrath. And the answer to that question is yes. There is a point of no return. But hold on, because that's not the complete answer. You know, before I was a Christian, I thought I was a Christian. I thought I was a Christian because I went to church. My parents were going to church, and I got dragged along with them. Went to Bible, uh, the kids' kids' church, and then I was did some religious stuff. You know, I got uh, baptized. Actually, the faith tradition I came from baptized an in, in infant, but I was confirmed. I learned the books of the Bible. I, I knew some religious stuff, but I I didn't know God. I didn't know this verse, John seventeen three. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That eternal life is equated to knowing God, not checking off religious boxes. But I did know enough about God to know that this God was in the forgiveness business. And in my, in my mind, in my conniving mind, at the time, actually, I thought, okay, well, if there's one forgivable sins, sin, that means there's a whole lot of unforgivable ones. Or, pardon me, I, I messed it up, didn't I? If there's one unforgivable sin, that means there's a whole lot of forgivable ones. Okay, I think that's good news. That gives me some wiggle room, doesn't it? Gives me some wiggle room and and you know, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm human. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sin. And not that I was purposely setting out to be a wicked person, but I thought, you know, I can manage this. I can, I can manage my sin. And maybe you're in the same place, possibly. 
You feel like you're doing a pretty good job managing your sin. So before we answer this question, what is the forgivable sin? Let's take a look at what provoked Jesus to have this encounter with the teachers of the law in the first place in Mark chapter 3, 20, verse 22. But the teachers of religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. Okay. Hmm. You might be scratching your head. I don't even know if that really makes sense. But wait. The, so Jesus is, is conquering demons, and he's doing it with the power of, of demons. That, that doesn't really make sense. Well, it didn't make sense to Jesus either, and he calls them out on it. Continuing. Verse 23 now. Oop, I got lost here. Here we go, here we go. Jesus called them over and responded with an illustration. How can Satan cast out Satan? He asked. A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? Hmm. Jesus is basically saying, hey guys, this is a ridiculous accusation. This is kind of like a grade school accusation. Makes no sense at all. This would be like Mike Tyson rearing back with one of his signature uppercuts and knocking himself right in the jaw as hard as he could. It's not going to work. This would be like Michael Jordan heading down the floor. 360 dunk, scoring for the other team, scoring for the Utah Jazz on purpose. And we know, certainly, that that would never happen. Just how, how would the Bulls have won in 97 and 98, right? Okay, I'm sorry. I had to throw that in there. But this is, this is ridiculous. And, you know, at this point, Jesus had, had quite the following. He had been speaking with authority. Uh, he had been challenging the religious leaders and, and their uh, interpretation of the law. And then he had been backing up his words with, of course, miraculous signs of, of healing and casting out demons. But the teachers of the law, they, they just wanted to ignore the evidence. But Jesus goes on with another illustration here. He says, let me illustrate further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. What's Jesus talking about? Was Jesus giving us instructions, plundering instructions here? I don't, I don't think so. Jesus is continuing to refute this ridiculous claim by pointing really to his own life. Jesus is saying, look, all sin and death and disease has entered the world through the lies and murderous deception of this strong man. In other words, Satan, in this illustration, is the strong man. But Jesus is saying, look, look at what I'm doing. The blind can see, the sick are healed. Lame can walk. I am the stronger man. You guys may remember a story from Luke chapter 4. Jesus enters a synagogue and claims that the 
fulfillment of the very scripture he's about, he, he's read, is in himself. And this is a scripture he reads. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus says, this is me. And these, these teachers of the law, they can't dismiss his authority. They can't dismiss his power. So with no argument, what do they do? Something that's very common. They attack what? They attack his character. And people do this to one another all the time. I've got a story within my own family on the, on the lighter note where this happened recently. So we began, uh, we have a, a game night in our home. Myself, my wife, and, and our two daughters, uh, Sydney and Presley. And... Um, we, we introduced Clue to this game night several weeks back. Okay? Now, my youngest daughter, Presley, had never played the game of Clue before, so we went through the process of, of getting her up to speed, and she really wasn't listening, wasn't paying attention. It was kind of annoying. So we're like, okay, everybody else, let's, let's just start playing. So here we go. We're, we're in the game, and she is frantically, if you know how clues work, Clue works, she's frantically writing all these notes down on her little Clue pad. These notes that, that the rest of us are going, what in the heck? What in, in tarnation is she doing here? There's not even any clues. I mean, she was writing stuff down before anyone had even made a move yet. And we're thinking, oh, okay, she doesn't understand this game. And, of course, who won the first game of Clue? Presley won. And we said what? We said, oh, okay, beginner's luck. Beginner's luck. Okay, fine. So we play, and now it's week two we play Clue, week three, week four, four weeks in a row we play it, and guess who do you think has won every single game of Clue to this point? Presley Grace. So what do we say? What would you guys say? Okay, Presley, sure you're winning. We, we can't deny that you're dominating us in this game. But you're what? You're cheating, of course. And this is what these Pharisees are doing, right? Now we said this lovingly to Presley. She actually has come up with some crazy system. <laughs> if you we're, we've been looking at her clue cards afterwards and going, we can't even figure out. She's got X's and O's and question marks and dashes and dots, and, and we don't know. But she's mastered this game. <laughs> anyway, how much, how much worse is it for these men, in spite of the evidence, to refuse to see Jesus for who he really is? Remember how, how John Mark introduced Jesus, chapter 1, verse 1? the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. These men refuse to accept Jesus in spite, again, of the evidence. They refuse to accept John Mark's testimony. They re re refuse to accept Jesus' own words and his teaching with authority. They refuse to accept the miraculous signs and wonders that go along with that, that back him up. And they won't even entertain the idea that Jesus is good news. Instead, no, they say, this man, he is wicked, and they refuse the real Jesus. So the question is, who is the real Jesus? Now, I doubt many in here would, um, would claim that Jesus is possessed by a demon, but regardless, our faith is only as good as the object we place it in. In other words, if we have the wrong Jesus, we may be in danger because we need to be sure that the Jesus that we gather together in worship is the Jesus who has been revealed to us 
in Holy Scripture. The one who has the power to save us from our sin. And not some other version of Jesus. And we have been given evidence as well. We have been given all of creation that testifies to God. We have been given God's word that is inspired by his Holy Spirit. And so let's take a look at at our next scripture here, Acts chapter 10, to see what God's word says about the real Jesus. Uh, I've got kind of a a Cliff Notes version of the verse on here. I'm going to read you the full verse now, um, 36 through 43. This is the message of good news for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all, You know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after John began preaching his message of baptism. And you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we, apostles, are witnesses of all he did throughout Judea and Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him to life on the third day. And God allowed him to appear, not to the general public, but to us whom God had chosen in advance to be his witnesses. We were those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And and he ordered us to preach everywhere and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of all, the living and the dead. He is the one all the prophets testify about, saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. Now this, this passage is enough to provide a, a life, life's worth of, of sermon material, but we're going to take a look at a few parts of it here. We're going to break it down and look at some of the words that Peter said um, uh, as we, for, for our teaching time today, um, starting with Lord of all. Peter says, He is the Lord of all. Of all, so what, is, what does he mean here? Well, we can, we can look at Scripture to interpret Scripture. Revelation 5.9, you were slain, Jesus, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Jesus is Lord of everyone, from everywhere, regardless of their background, regardless of the culture, regardless of, of their Jew or Gentile in this case. And also, Jesus is Lord with a capital L. Jesus is God. We can look to John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let me paraphrase here. Jesus is God. Jesus is eternal. He is the second person of the triune Godhead. Fully God, fully man. The second person of the Trinity, but the same essence as God. Three in persons, one in essence. Jesus created all things. Nothing, as we read, was created that wasn't created through Jesus Christ, including the fallen angel Satan and his fallen angel demon buddies. 
Jesus is the light. Satan is the darkness. But this is not an equal fight. We should never get the idea that this is kind of some Eastern philosophy, yin and yang principle going on here. This isn't the dark side versus the light side. This isn't Star Wars. Jesus is Lord of all. Yes, Jesus is even God over Satan. Satan can't move a muscle without receiving permission from God. So, so take heart, for the prince of darkness has nothing, no power over our prince of peace. Second, Jesus went around doing good. Now, this is obvious. Jesus, far from doing evil, went around doing good. He wasn't involved in doing uh, black magic or any activities of demons. Jesus was good. And as believers, what can we glean from this as those that want to follow Jesus? I think, well, sometimes we're satisfied with just going around. And we forget to be purposeful about the doing good part, right? We need, to, we need to be sensitive to what the Holy Spirit would have us say, what he would have us do. Every time we go about, we should go about doing good, look, looking to, to do good, looking to connect people to our Savior. Next. They put him to death, but God raised him to life. For me, early in my faith walk, this was kind of a a bottom line thing I needed to wrestle with. And maybe you're here today. Maybe you're you're questioning questioning everything. Maybe you've you've thought, I don't really know. I, I you know I hear what the world is telling me. I hear all these things about science and evolution and yada yada yada. Were the were the dinosaurs really on the boat? I really don't know. But here's the place you need to start. Did Jesus really walk out of that tomb? I believe he did, and because I believe he did, that changed everything about my life. And it'll change your life as well. Jesus is the judge of all. We don't like to think about Jesus as being the judge. We much more like to think about Jesus as the the forgiving mild shepherd, but Jesus will judge, and he will judge perfectly. Jesus sees reality exactly as it is. He sees our fallen state. In other, in other words, Jesus will perfectly judge every single sin. Even the ones that you think no one knows about, Jesus knows about them. The, the sins of omission and commission, the sins that we do that we shouldn't, the things that we should do that we don't. Every time you've been, and I've been when I was a child or kids now, every time you're disobedient to your parents, even when they're not in the room, even when it's under your breath, Jesus knows about it. Jesus knows every time men that you've looked at another with, uh, with lust. You've committed adultery in your heart. Jesus, Jesus knows about it, men, men and women. Jesus knows our, our 
anger that, that he actually, unrighteous anger that he actually puts at the same level of murder. Jesus knows every time we look at our neighbor's stuff and we covet it and we want it, every time there's a commercial and we think, we, I should have that. I want that. Jesus knows about it. My house is not big enough. I wish I had a better snowblower like that guy. <laughs> Jesus knows about every single one of our sins, no matter how small or how egregious. Which brings us to some wonderful news. Everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name, through the name of Christ. In other words, through the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus, all sin can be forgiven for those who believe. It seems almost too easy, doesn't it? And you know, that's what the teachers of the law thought as well. And it's interesting to think about this, but did you you know that these teachers of the law, these religious leaders, they didn't want someone to come along and make forgiveness uh, something, something simple. No, these guys wanted to stay in control. They wanted to have control around who could access God. And so they wanted to keep it complicated. Maybe you know of a religion like that. These men held positions of power and they wanted to control the way people were allowed to pursue a relationship with God. But Jesus comes along and he says, no, I'm going to make it simple because I am the way. So these, these leaders, these religious rulers who put all sorts of extra cumbersome legalities around following God, they were threatened by Jesus. Unforgiveness essentially had created a, a marketplace, if you will, for the teachers of the law and the religious leaders to exploit people. And the last thing that they wanted was for someone to come along and break up their monopoly. Well, someone did come along, hallelujah, and that someone is Jesus. Let's continue to look at what the Holy Spirit has to reveal to us about the real Jesus in Colossians chapter 2. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave forgave all our sins. He He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Jesus is victorious. The wages of sin is death indeed. But Jesus never sinned. Death couldn't keep him in the grave. What are the implications of this verse? In short, Jesus' work on the cross covers every single one of our sins. Now some of you still may be wondering, yes, but have I committed the sin that's too grievous for God to forgive, the one you said that there's no coming back from. And the answer is, if you're still breathing, are all of you breathing? Yes, okay, the answer is no. But wait a minute, Pastor. I I thought you said there was this sin that you couldn't come back from, an unforgivable sin, if you will. 
Are you, are you speaking out of both sides of your mouth? Well, bear with me. Let's continue on with our passage today. I tell you the truth. All sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. This is Jesus continuing to speak. But anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. He told them this because they were saying he is possessed by an evil spirit. So this begs the question. If all sin can be forgiven except the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, well, okay, pastor, get to it. What exactly is blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Well, the word blaspheme simply means to treat with contempt, to insult God, in this case, God the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is warning these men that if they remain in this place of insulting the Holy Spirit by rejecting the true identity of Jesus, they are in danger of eternal judgment. Indeed, if these men continue in unrepentance and unbelief, they will die in their sins with no hope of the forgiveness that Jesus himself would make available to them on the cross. So, let me ask you a question. Who will be eternally unforgiven? Think about it. Who will be eternally unforgiven? The answer is quite simple. The unrepentant unbeliever. The person that dies with a stony, unrepentant heart has refused to believe the gospel will suffer an eternal consequence. The unforgivable sin is unrepentance unto unbelief in the real Jesus. Now we know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Some of us have that verse memorized, I'm sure, but what about John 3.18? Whoever believes in him is not condemned, Hallelujah. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus is firing a warning shot across these men's bow because contrary to all the evidence, they are calling Jesus, who is obviously good, evil. They will refuse they are refusing to repent and believe. Now, some of you remember uh, um, when, when Peter first encountered Jesus, Jesus' divinity specifically. Remember, Peter was out fishing, and he had been fishing all night. They didn't catch a thing. Him and his crew didn't catch a thing. Jesus borrows their boat. He preaches a message, and he says to Peter, Hey, Peter, why don't you go out a little deeper, put your, put your nets back in the water? And, and Peter says, uh, okay, God, if you say so. Peter was a pro. He thought, there's no way. And what happened? He experiences the power of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus. The nets are filled to the point of breaking. The boats are filled with the point of sinking. And what is Peter's response in contrast to these Pharisees? What is Peter's response? Do you remember? Luke 5.8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. When encountered with the real Jesus, Peter goes to a place of recognizing his brokenness, recognizing his sin. He has a penitent spirit. 
He's moved to true repentance. Contrast that with the teachers of the law who when confronted with the undeniable divine attribute of Jesus resort to what? Calling him names. Now, again, I imagine you would not think of accusing Jesus of being possessed. But regardless, have you repented from your sin and are you trusting the real Jesus for complete forgiveness? You see, that young man I talked to you about earlier who thought he was a Christian, me, if you don't remember, had never repented from his sin, had never trusted in Jesus fully for forgiveness. I was in that place of trying to manage my sin. I thought, well, certainly, I don't sin like other people. My sin is manageable. I don't need to go to Jesus. Jesus, you died for other people. And I was insulting the Holy Spirit by refusing to repent from this sin management system. In my pride, I would not repent and accept the full payment Jesus had made for me on the cross. And if you think about it, think about how insulting that is to God. To say, God, you know, A, I, I, I really don't need you. Or God, let me, let me help you. Let me bring some stuff to the table. Really two different ways to think about it. God, you know, you sent your son Jesus to die for your sin, but, you know, my sin's really not at that level. So thank, thanks. I got this. What an insult to God. And I had insulted God by refusing to be in his word, by refusing to learn about who God has revealed himself to be through his word. And no, instead, I created the God of my own imagination. And guess what? That God looked a lot like me. He didn't mind a lot of the sin I was involved in. Here's what I found out. That sin management system would eventually come crashing down. The guilt and shame of my sin would become unbearable to manage. You see, as far as forgiveness goes, either all your sin is forgiven or none of them are. So let me ask you, are you tired? Are you burdened down? Are you tired of attempting to manage your own sin. You must repent and believe the gospel. If you refuse to repent and believe the gospel, then even your smallest sin will go into eternity with you, separated from God, unforgiven. Or say, or say you're like the, the gentleman I met on the golf course last summer. Golf course is a good place to, to witness to people. It's kind of like fishing. Not as good as fishing, though. Fishing's a little better because, you know, people aren't, aren't unlikely to actually jump out of the boat and swim away. But with golf, you know, they're, they've paid for the round. You're riding a cart with them. It would be rude for them just to get up and leave the golf course. So, so I, I have an opportunity from time to time to share Christ on the golf course when the Holy Spirit opens the, opens the door. So this particular story, there's a man that I met who was open about his atheism and who was willing to have a talk about spiritual things. You know, he asked me what I did for a living. I'm a pastor. And this how this all kind of came about. And so we're talking, and I'm talking about children, those that are children of God versus those that are not. And he, he stops me and says, whoa, wait, wait, wait a minute. 
I mean, even if there was a God, aren't we all children of God? And this is a very common belief. It's incorrect, but it's a very common belief. It's not a scriptural belief at all. He says, well, wouldn't we all just be children of God? I said, well, well no, and I began to explain this to him. But he, he was, didn't want to really hear my explanation. He got, got annoyed and kind of just cut me off. He said, okay, wait a minute, bottom line, what's the difference? What's the difference between you and I? Now, at this point, I felt uh, nudged by the Holy Spirit myself to kind of go right up to his level. And so I said, okay, and we'll call him Ken. I said, Ken, listen. And I got pretty much right face to face with him. I said, listen, Ken. Here's the bottom line. You want the bottom line? Here it is. You and I are both sinners. But Ken, I'm a forgiven sinner and you are not. You need to repent and believe the gospel. He scoffed. He said, I don't need to be forgiven. I'm a good guy. And you know what? Maybe I'll give, I'll give that to him. From, from, the, from looking at it this way, maybe if, if, if Ken were to look at the world and compare himself to others, sure, maybe he's a good guy. But again, when we, when we move from a horizontal comparison to a vertical one. We got no chance. God's standard is perfection and we do not measure up to it. We need a Savior. And so this man, heaven forbid, but if this man, if, he's, if he remains in that place of hardness of heart, of unrepentance, if he refuses to believe the gospel and he dies in that state, that is the point of un of no return. That is the point at which Ken will spend all of eternity thinking about that conversation we had on the golf course that day and probably thinking about the many other Christians. God, in his graciousness, has sent his way to share the truth of the gospel with him that he's rejected. No amount of regret or sorrow can ever change his position. And when an eternity goes by, he'll have another eternity to think about it. In complete torment, separated, cut off from the God of the universe who loves him and gave himself for him. So, if you're here with me today, like I said, and you're unrepentant, you are in danger. But even, but even that can be forgiven if you would repent and trust the gospel. All our sins are forgiven as Christians. And this should give us a confidence to know that Jesus is the stronger man, that he has bound up Satan, that we indeed have been plundered from Satan's house and rescued from our lives of sin. And this should give us confidence to go from this place as Christians, to have assurance to share the good news of the gospel with those who don't know him.
And if, again, if you don't know him this morning, come to Jesus. You can trust him. Jesus forgives whatever that sin is, no matter how small or how great, Jesus paid for it on the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, God, we thank you, God, for rescuing wretched sinners like, like us, Lord. We thank you, God, for removing the scales from our eyes that we could see, Lord, who the real Jesus is. We thank you, Lord God, that you haven't made it complicated, God, that you've made it easy, that you've done the work, that you've gone before us to live the perfect life, Lord God, that we could not live, that you went to the cross to pay the sin penalty we deserve to pay, and that you rose from the dead to offer anyone who would repent and believe the gospel everlasting life, forgiveness and everlasting life, relationship with you, God. Help us to go from this place, Lord. And if, Lord, if we haven't made a decision to trust you, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring conviction and that would happen. But for those that have trusted you, God, I pray that we would go from this place, that we would go out, help our neighbors shovel their driveways and then or maybe you don't have time for that because you're going to be in that discipleship class this afternoon. That you go to that class and that, that, Lord, you leave asking this question, God, who have you put in my path and on my heart that they might come to know you, a gracious, merciful, loving God who saved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.